For almost 2,000 years, the Catholic Church has pointed the way toward salvation through Jesus Christ. For each of us, that journey starts in darkness, as if in a cave. We invite you now to come with us as we seek wisdom and truth by way of faith and reason with your guides, Mark Tuttle and Timothy O'Donnell. Join us in the Catholic Cave. Welcome once again to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kent Blanford. With me in the cave, the two most intelligent cave dwellers you're ever likely to come across, Mr. Mark Tuttle and Mr. Timothy O'Donnell. Gentlemen, to set the scene, last week we discussed some of the basic terms and the, the history of philosophy. We only got so far with it, and so um, we're going to pick up kind of where we left off. And for those who you know might be coming in and maybe missed last week's episode, go to catholicradioindy.org and click on podcasts. The one you'll want to look for is the Catholic Cave Terms and Times. That would be part one. Today, Terms and Times, part two. Take it away, guys. <laughs> I have to bring. I have to bring up my uh, my my deep. Um, my 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 deep voice that does the voiceovers for the movies and last week on the Catholic cave. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but we were talking about scholasticism. We sure were. And we tried to define scholasticism and we wound up going through a lot of the history and sort of historical backdrop of what was going on in the world that led to the philosophical developments and St. Thomas Aquinas and how he you know, revived Aristotle and how then that led into sort of a stagnation of scholasticism. And then we talked a little bit about Descartes and Hegel and Hume and how those were kind of the three pillars of modernism. And we ended talking about Leo Thirteenth and how he wanted to go back and have a revival to a certain extent of Thomistic philosophy to sort of engage some of the controversies that were going on because of modernism. And that's really where we kind of left off with our show last week. It sure is. We were talking about uh, a little bit, one of his uh, many, many encyclicals, great writings, Pope Leo XIII, uh, true, true son of Holy Mother Church, um, of blessed memory, his uh, the encyclical we had pointed out, and worth worth mentioning again here, was Eterni Patris, which was his attempt had a long subtitle to it, but basically it's about the um, re reacquainting the the both the uh, the clergy and the faithful with uh, the writing and teaching of Saint Thomas Aquinas, pr- placing him uh, as sort of the gold standard by which we ought to measure our philosophical and theological inquiry. So uh, not a placeholder to say, hey, this is all there is to say of it, but rather uh, he is the angelic doctor, he was called, because his writings were so sublime. And Pope Leo XIII uh, begins to usher in a new era of Thomism. It's called T-H-O-M-I-S-M after who? Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas. Right, and he did this more than just Eterni Patri. He you know, established the uh, Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas there at the Vatican. Still there today. And he also established um, or was sort of the impetus behind a Thomistic Institute at the University of Louvain. Yes, he and he's calling for reform in seminaries and uh, sort of re- a recapitulation of the uh, teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas. And this launches 
a very, he's very successful at it. This launch is a, a, compl- a, a whole revival. And so you, he, you begin to have uh, priests and uh, theologians and philosophers all beginning to take up St. Thomas Aquinas anew and then trying to advance his uh, philosophy and theology in, in the current setting. And you have then, and there's a lot going on. So this is around the end of the 19th century into the 20th century. And so we see at the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, there's conflicts. And, of course, we're going to run into what? World War One, World War Two, and what follows. Right, and and the aftermath of that had huge philosophical implications because in a lot of ways the bottom just dropped out of a Western civilization after the the culmination of the two two wars. So I mean, that may be an overstatement, but you know, the, you you definitely well, there's a see, kind of crisis. Yeah, though. you, you yeah. definitely see a crisis. You definitely see sort of a, a rethinking of the whole tradition going on, and the ushering in of what what's called postmodernism. After that, but um, going back to this new Thomism, it was called Neo Thomism, and in a lot of ways, you know, maybe a better term for it would be reactionary Thomism, because that's really what sets it apart from the actual writings of Saint Thomas Aquinas and what had happened with Scholasticism leading up to Modernism. Is this new Thomism ushered in by Pope Leo the Thirteenth is really a reaction against the Modernists. Yes. And it's really most of it is trying to answer questions and answer complications that came out of modernism. And so in a lot of ways, it's a reactionary movement rather than it's... It's I, almost like a counter-reformation, you know, what the right. counter-reformation was to the Reformation. Yeah, just a question. Uh, where are we set in time, in history, when we're talking about this particular the, encyclical? Uh, the turn of the 20th century, for the most part. Yeah, so... so it, it, Attorney 20, Pacho was about 1890... I think 1879. 1879, a little bit yeah. earlier than that. Yeah, so you're within a... So that so that 18, 1870s through 1950s is really this period where you begin to have this neo-Thomistic movement and coupled alongside of it, a neo-scholastic movement, um, all of which sort of comes to an end um, uh, with uh, Vatican II. Vatican II uh, sort of ushers in, in, and this has been talked about by many uh, historians and theologians, uh, Pope Emeritus spent the 16th. For, for many within the church, the uh, Vatican II uh, became a moment of rupture to cut ourselves off from the past and do things completely differently. Uh, others, like Pope Benedict and uh, St. John Paul the Great, you know, used it as an opportunity of continuity and development. And so, but in that, though, you have a, a dropping out of, you sort of have a, a halt, if you will, of uh, Thomism fall, neo-Thomism and scholasticism falls out of favor within where it's really this project where these things kept alive, really. It's the seminaries and the universities. The Catholic seminary and university are where these schools of thought are really kept alive, right? Because the average person, Mark, you and I, well, we're, we're geeky, we're in the cave, but but the average layperson out there probably isn't picking up Aristotle and Aquinas and Bonaventure and others in their leisure uh, to a large scale. I'll well, you think... But the fact of the matter is, these types of philosophies, and not just Thomism, it's really any large school of philosophy, is 
there in the air, so to speak. It's in the culture. You're and so, so right. People people absorb it. Whether they, you know, Thomism, you're going to be absorbing that through what? Your catechesis at your Catholic church. And so you saw a shift in catechesis after Leo the Thirteenth back to St. Thomas. And you, you saw this revival of the manualists, the, the, <laughs> which, which right. is kind of a derogatory term. But, um, yeah, these were, you know, attempts to kind of, Put in a lot of ways attempts to do what we're doing on this show. Put St. Thomas Aquinas in an accessible fashion so that people could understand again what his thought was because nobody's going to sit there and plow through the Summa on, in their spare time, exactly as you pointed Correct. out, Tim. It's hard. Right. It's, that's, uh, that's the deep end of the pool. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing that's going on, and, and like I said, is, is Thomism was being used now to try to push back against some of the errors that came out of modernism. So when we're talking about neo-Thomism, Tim, what are some of the characteristics, I think, of neo-Thomism so that you know people can get their head around this idea of you know when we drop the term neo-Thomism, this is what they ought to think. Well, for neo-Thomism, what comes to mind, what I would say should come to mind is um, again the writings. So we're, the foundation or source are the writings of Saint Thomas Aquinas. In as you mentioned, his seminal work is the Summa Theologiae. Uh, he also writes the uh, Summa Contra. Uh, Gentiles is another great work. He has others too, but really it's the Summa Theologiae. And, and the new t- uh, uh, Thomas, what they're doing is they're rereading the source, and then what they're doing is that they're they're then um, uh, looking for new ways to not only express it, but also new ways to bring it to bear against, like you said, the forces of modernism. Who are some of the quintessential examples of that? Um, well, Etienne Gilson would be one. Uh, the other one would be Jacques Maritain, and so and both of which to this day still have very vibrant uh, societies that follow right. their work um, and engage in their work. Uh, Maritain has, uh, I know at uh, University of Notre Dame, uh, they've got a Maritain um, uh, society up there. Etienne Josson, uh, our friend of the show, Dr. Redpath, is he might run that thing right. <laughs> for for Josson. But you have these, and what's what's new about it is. Um, you take Gilson, for example. He goes back and, and he becomes very uh, interested in metaphysics. One of the casualties of the era of modernism is that there's this, this uh, crisis or bankruptcy, if you will, about our understanding of metaphysics, that which beco- comes before physics. The, the, the questions and issues around being, essence, existence, it touches on cos- uh, cosmology. And uh, Gilson goes back, rereads Aquinas, who's kind of lost, uh, has been kind of discarded and sort of lost, if you will, Nicole, and and begins to what rearticulate that. So he'll bring out he'll bring out a book, for example, uh, being in philosophers, and so where he gives an accounting of metaphysics, and then brings at the by the end he's restated a an authentic Catholic metaphysics. That's updated with the kind of terminology, language, uh, arguments, and context for modern uh, modern ears, modern minds, and against modern errors. Right, because in modernism, in the, this movement of modernism, we had Descartes and Kant, who both kind of together cast off and really looked askance at the idea even of metaphysics. Correct. And so they they really tried to to kind of 
proved the point that metaphysics was unnecessary. In a lot of ways, it was unphilosophical. It was unprovable, so you know, logically provable. So therefore, it wasn't something that a philosopher really ought to spend his time on. And then, of course, the skepticism of Hume was in some ways really seen as the, the nail all, in that. All three are troublemakers. Exactly. <laughs> and so metaphysics had gone by the wayside and had been supplanted by analytic yeah. philosophy coming out of England and, and this, and then uh, more what's called continental philosophy, which led into existentialism and, and Jean-Paul Sartre and you know these types of people. Um, and so Maritain was really coming out of that continental tradition. That's where he had mm -hmm. his education, as was Josson. Um, and they both um, kind of, in, in reaction to it, brought back metaphysics to, to kind of try to say, no, you do need an understanding of being. You do need an understanding of essence. And all of that was in an effort to ground philosophy back into, this is to me one of the other big characteristics of, of Neo-Thomism, an understanding of realism. Yes, yes. So um, we're going to have to take a break. You're listening to The Catholic Cave here on Catholic Radio, and we're going to take a break. We'll be right back. What happens when you support Catholic Radio Indy? Local parishes and organizations have a resource to share their message. Listeners of all persuasions get to hear the unfiltered truths of the Catholic faith. And maybe, just maybe, you'll have a share in saving a soul for Christ. Won't you join our mission? Call 317-870-8400 or give online at catholicradioindy.org. Have you been married and have since divorced? Do you think your marital status prevents you from coming to church? Most Catholics and non-Catholics unfortunately have a lot of misconceptions about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Pope Francis has recently encouraged all people with questions about marriage to make an appointment and talk with their parish priest. As Catholic priests, we look forward to the opportunity to help you on your journey through life. Please make an appointment to speak with the priest today. We are and will always be here for you. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Timothy O'Donnell. Still in the cave, Mark Tuttle and Kent Blanford, our trusty sidekick and producer. So, Mark, before the break, we were talking about realism. Right. Let's yeah. go a little bit further on that topic. What do you mean by realism? Well, realism, once again, as it came back up, it is in reaction to some thoughts and, and movements that were going on from some modernism. Trouble. Some yeah. trouble that had been caused. Yeah. And so realism is the idea that our senses correspond with reality, which sounds to most people like <laughs> common utter, sense, utter right? common sense, yeah. but this idea had been challenged and it had been challenged in kind of a, a three-part move, I think, between Descartes, Hume, and Kant. So Descartes, he, um, he wanted to get back to a foundation that we could know without doubting. We could indubitably have knowledge of something. Yes. And one of the things we all know deceives us are our senses. Our senses yeah. often deceive us. Yeah, know? optical illusions, exactly. etc. I swore I saw a coyote in my neighborhood the other day. It <laughs> turned out it wasn't a coyote at all. But right. it, you know, <laughs> things like that. Our senses are known to deceive us. Past knowledge that we've learned from other people. Obviously, that 
can cause problems. Yes. Um, you know, so th- that's no. So what can we undubitably know? And this is what Descartes set out to try to find out. And he was a Jesuit. And so he tried to follow and apply the methods that he had learned from Ignatius Loyola. And he did a series of meditations very much patterned off of the Ignatian meditations to get back to what he could indubitably know. And what he came to realize is the very fact that he was thinking, the very fact that there was thought going on made it so that he could be sure that he existed. That it wasn't just a dream. That it wasn't just a dream. And, <laughs> and hence the, the cogito ergo sum. There's thinking, therefore right. I am. You know, since there's thinking going on and, and, and there's cogitation going on, I know at least that I can exist. And from this then, Descartes tried to build back up and he tried to exta- you know, reestablish the existence of God, um, you know, reexistence, the validity of our senses. But in the process of this, he kind of split the universe into two. He split the universe into things that are of cognition, things that we can... Of the mind. Of the mind. Okay. And things of space. Okay. And material things. Material things. things. And I those, gotcha. And so of those material things, he was also a brilliant mathematician. Um, oh, I heard that, yeah. And so he was able to kind of plot and, and thought all of physical reality could be mapped out and plotted on, hey, Cartesian coordinates, right? And so, <laughs> so a system <laughs> go, of yeah. uh, a, a system of being able to plot all of reality. Well, Hume. David. David Hume. The Scottish philosopher. He was highly dubitable about Descartes' <laughs> indubitability. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and was very skeptical of this idea that the mind could be able to um, come to anything with any sort of certainty. So mm-hmm. basically, Descartes kind of shook him up enough to read Doubt. He's got s- yeah. radical doubt. Radical doubt, and he doubted the existence of these things of the mind. And that was okay. kind of what he did. Okay. And for him, the big question was causality. You know, we, we go, we think that there's one thing that's caused by another. and that's, That there's linkage between and, cause and effect. And that's what Descartes went to build everything up from his, you know, cogito ergo sumum, there's thinking going on, therefore I am. Well, then the linkaging and the causality is what he kind of built the rest of the universe off of. And Hume said, wait, 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 wait. You haven't proven that you can do that step, that you can, that you can move from one thing to the other and show that it necessarily corresponds. So he was really a, a skeptic of basic mm. logic in a lot of ways. And, you know, famously said things like, we don't really know that the sun is going to rise tomorrow. We just sort of expect it because it's always happened that way. Right. And, yeah, and the yeah, link yeah. between... There's it, the doubt. Right, exactly. The link between it always having happened and it will happen again, we, we have no way of really knowing that. So, um, so there's radical skepticism then kind of... I might say it still kind of lingers with us today. It kind of lingers, but in a, in a lot of ways, it really threatened all of philosophy. Well, sure. If you can't know anything, then what's the point of trying to know anything? <laughs> right. So, <laughs> so, right, let's just go play golf. <laughs> right, exactly. You're just out for the grade and the documents. That's right. <laughs> well, we have online courses now for that. Right, exactly, yeah, and, and medication also. <laughs> so this led to Immanuel Kant, who was a Prussian, a Lutheran Prussian living in in Germany. 
And uh, very, I mean, if you thought of a stereotypical German Prussian, that was Immanuel Kant. I mean, he had his pattern. He had his... his Precision. Uh, and, and his <laughs> schedule that he never deviated from. And so he was a philosophy professor that was going to go along and be a philosophy professor. And then <laughs> he read David Hume and yes. it shook him up. He said mm. it, it, it awoke him from his dogmatic slumber. Mm. Um, so he had been going along in his Prussian philosophical ways. But he read Hume, and he couldn't figure out why Hume was wrong. And so this woke him up. And his washer ladies famously knew that something was amiss because he missed his afternoon walk. Oh, yeah. That's a so, big deal. And they, 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 they began to worry about him because sure. he, he didn't come out for his afternoon walk one day. And That's how predictable he was. So, yeah. so, so Immanuel Kant put his mind to this problem. And uh, the way he solved it is by kind of proving to a certain extent that what goes on in reality does correspond with what's in our mind. But Hume's doubt applies only to those things out in reality. So what goes on in our mind, we can know. As, as Descartes said, we can know the, you know the causality goes on, but it's the way our minds are built. To, to put that the together. Structures the structures stru- exactly. within our own mind, our own so ca- our categories, I think he calls Our them. mind is constructed with time. Our mm. mind is constructed with spatiality. And so it conditions these things that we perceive through our senses, right? Right, exactly. Okay. But what we can't verify is that our senses actually correspond to anything out in the real world. Ooh, that's a problem. That That is a problem. That is a problem. So to a certain extent... So we're sort of locked in our own minds then. We're locked into our own minds. And this leads then also to the, the, the question, and then this launches a whole segment of philosophy based on interpretation. Ooh. You know, if we're locked in our minds and we can't be sure that reality out there really corresponds, then all we're left with are rival interpretations. A, of, a of, radical kind of subjectivity then, yeah, right? Yeah, yep, exactly. Because you can't really get out of your... I mean, there's a point there... Around that he makes that's worth wrestling with a little bit, which is that it, you can't get outside your own mind. Right, right? exactly. I mean, I can only and think you know, with my own mind. Kant's, I can't think with your mind. In Kant's defense, <laughs> he was a good Lutheran. And so, yeah. as was Hegel, as were a lot of these philosophers that they kind of get a bad rap these days. Um, and so he was. Well, that's what I like to do on the commercial breaks. Here, right? <laughs> I like to barbecue Kant and Hegel and Descartes. Right. So you know, one of Kant's big problems was trying to, in a lot of ways, save space for God in the midst of this radical doubt and in the oh, midst of this, yeah. you know, reducing everything down to um, sense data and what we can perceive through the senses. Um, a la Descartes, um, who is the mathematician and scientist. And so in a lot of ways, you know, Descartes, really his project was trying to build up the edifice of being able to know and explore the universe in a way that was undoubtable, um, i.e. scientifically. But, yeah, that right. gave, gave you the certitude that you can get with, say, arithmetic. Right, exactly. And so um, Kant wanted to preserve space for God in this. And and so the the, the two places where he was really able to kind of carve out where one was in aesthetics um, and our reaction to the sublime our, our reaction to as he put it the starry skies above um, you know <laughs> yes. that that feeling of awe to him that was a touchstone with this outside world and it was a way that we get out of our heads mm, um, okay. you know, that, that reaction to the sublime that we have in aesthetics and the other was through ethics um, through our response to what he called the categorical imperative so this universalism that we see within ethics, um, that you know, there are rules that are followed at all times, at all places, by all people. Um, right. There's a commonality there 
that allows us to get out of our heads. And so from ethics and this experience of the sublime, he thought we could, to a certain extent, you know, basically have religious experiences where religious experience came from. And that gave us a touchstone back to what he called the noumenal world, which is the, the world that's outside of our, our, our minds, um, as opposed to the phenomenal world, which is what's going on inside of our heads. Yeah, there's the whole, I, I always get kind of mixed up, the noumena, the phenomena, right, blah, exactly. blah, blah. So, <laughs> here's the thing about Kant, too, that's worth mentioning. And then we'll, maybe we'll advance the conversation, which is that <clears throat> part of his ethics, as I, underst- as I understand it, as I've read him, is he places the emphasis on the primary places given to, by Kant, the will, the good will. So the way we, uh, the way we say exercise an ethical action is that we have to have a good will. We have to act as if, this is, I think, is his uh, categorical imperative, we have, to, we have to act as if in that, in that time, place, situation that we're in, uh, as if we would have anyone else that was reasonable in our same circumstances, they would do the same thing. Right, exactly. And so I think what that begins to, um, it, it does a few things. It, 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 puts a, it puts a certain emphasis on doing one's duty, but it also, I think, begins to, uh, over time, it begins to overemphasize, I think, the will. The act of choosing itself. And the reason why that I think that will become later on problematic as it sort of makes its way into the culture is we live in a time now, Mark, where choice, right, what I choose really has a lot of cachet with uh, how people look about what they're going to deliberate about what they're about to do or reflect on what they've done or, or failed to do has a lot to do with, well, we want to, I mean, that's the whole, you think of the abortion debate, right? Right, is, right. It's about choice, right? And this emphasis of will. Um, I, I think, he, not directly, Con, I'm not laying at Con's feet per se. I'm just saying that, he, that maybe a, a, a strain that, that comes from Kantian ethics on this emphasis of the goodwill, this subjectivity that comes from this perspectivism, which is going to give us a guy like Friedrich Nietzsche, I was going to pick up on that. Right. Um, are, these are all the, the the reason why we're using all these names, um, because these are the fo- these are the folks who are engaged in, in uh, certain kinds of philosophical inquiry from which Holy Mother Church feels like she needs to respond. Right. Exactly. And yeah, you know, Kant's um, reliance on the will in a lot of ways is because of what we started this whole section of it talking about was the dismissal of metaphysics. Yes. And, right, and right. The, the, this idea that we really don't need to pay attention to things like being. We don't really need to pay attention. Substantial forms. And, and for Kant, it wasn't a don't need to. It was a we can't. Right. You know, right. You know we, we really we have don't to, have access. We don't have it. access to it. Exactly. Right. All we have access to is the sense perceptions that we're getting in our heads. Right. And so... Um, so in a lot of ways, that, that crisis, and you're right, the voluntarism within ethics, I think, was probably the immediate crisis that the church was trying to address by calling us back to St. Thomas Aquinas. And um, the central figures in this latched very quickly onto trying to revive metaphysics. Well, with that being said, and said very well, Mark, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Catholic Cave here on Catholic Radio Indy. One day, one voice shared one message and one man who provides one way to God. Maybe that's why we have one objective. Share Jesus, the one who loves, saves, and forgives. Catholic Radio Indy. Have you ever thought about joining the Catholic Church? Have you just wanted to explore the Catholic faith? All you need to do is call your local Catholic Church for more information. 
we are always happy to help you in your journey to discover and learn more about the Catholic faith. We have classes that are almost year-round, and the classes and information sessions do not involve making a commitment, and there is no pressure to join. Please call your local Catholic parish for more information today and start the journey of one day possibly becoming Catholic as well. God bless. Three things keep Catholic Radio Indy on the air. One is our fervent desire to spread the gospel message. Two is your donations to the station. We couldn't survive without them. And three is underwriting from area businesses. Every month, these businesses make donations to the station. Please support them. Visit their stores. Send them an email or call them. Let them know that you appreciate their support of Catholic Radio. It's a great way to thank our underwriters for their very important support. For a long time, we've been telling you that if you have an Echo Dot or other smart speaker device, you can hear Catholic Radio Indy simply by saying, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Just the other day, I did that, and Alexa was feeling a bit argumentative. I'll let you hear my conversation with her. Uh, Alexa, where are you? Here I am. What do you want? Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Now, just why would you want me to do that? Well, because we've got great programming 24 hours a day. Well, a lot of other radio stations have good programs, too. Yeah, but our programming talks about God and eternal salvation. I am very smart. I know almost everything about everything, but I do not know about God and salvation. Well, that's why people need Catholic Radio Indy. So, Alexa, do me a favor. Whenever anyone says, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy, just send them our way, would you? Yes, I will be happy to do that. In the meantime, I am going to do some research about that thing you called salvation. I wonder where I can find out more about that. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Mark Tuttle, still here with Timothy O'Donnell, I think. Hello. <laughs> therefore he is. <laughs> he, yeah. I think therefore I am. <laughs> and also here with Kent Blanford, our trusty producer, and uh, man in the pews, so to speak. So Kent's job here on the Catholic Cave is to keep us from going off the deep end. But I don't think we've quite gotten there yet. Um, we've we're going to keep trying, though. <laughs> we're going to keep trying. We've been talking a lot about this revival of St. Thomas's philosophy. And we were talking a little bit about the philosophical background that came out of modernism, particularly the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, and how that led to a crisis in metaphysics. But I want to take a little side tour here for a second and talk a little bit about what I consider some of the positive good that came out of Immanuel Kant um, in a movement called phenomenology. And this did influence a lot of later church teaching in Mm. some ways in reaction against the neo-Thomism that we're talking (laughs) about now um, in a movement called phenomenology. So when Kant described the way our minds work, he broke everything into categories. So our mind is situated to intuit categories of things like time like space. time space and our mind kind of automatically does that right, with the information right, it's receiving right okay. so if you think of that terminator movie right and you had the which Termin- one well the very first one okay yeah, yeah which was the best right yeah exactly <laughs> and so arnold schwarzenegger is walking around and and he's intuiting reality and you, the, the, the producer gives you, a, or the uh, director gives you a view inside his mind, and there's this grid that goes over, and, oh, and yeah. it calculates, and it gives the names of, of what he's seeing and who he's seeing. In a lot of ways, that's how Kant described our mind working. Um, you know, the, the, we would you know, take what we're getting sensed data-wise and put it within this 
sort of um, framework. It's a kind framework. of intellectual exactly. framework. Yeah. So what happened was basically Kant's students went out beating the bushes trying to find new categories. So, All right. <laughs> <laughs> so Kant laid out a certain number of, of categories, you know, being, time, um, you know, space, how those things fit together. And then his students went out and tried to add to it and tried to find all sorts of different categories. And so what came out of that study, I mean, this is a very simplistic explanation, but what came out of that study was a movement called phenomenology. Mm. And it was really an attempt to try to go back and experientially describe what's going in on our heads as we're experiencing reality. And so um, George Gadamer and... Um, and uh, Edmund Husserl were the, the two kind of founders of this. They're, they're both students of Kant. Um, both, um, they kind of went out. And from that, um, Edith Stein, who later became St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross. She was, yeah. a, uh, she was a, a Jewish student of Husserl's who during World War II, I, I think what prior to World War II, she converted to Catholicism. Right. Yeah. And then during... Became a Car- Carmelite nun. Right, became a Carmelite nun. And then during World War II was persecuted and, and very consciously mm-hmm. chose to identify with the Jewish people mm-hmm. and, and was, was murdered by the Nazi regime. Yeah, I think um, she went to Auschwitz. Yeah. But she was also... And she had a PhD in philosophy. I was going to say, she was a brilliant philosopher and left yeah. a lot of writings and was highly... Science influ- of the Cross. Exactly. That's, that's, that's exactly. a good one to start with. Science of the Cross. And it's attempting to um, use that science of phenomenology, that, that movement of, of Gadamer and Husserl's to sort of map our experiences back to our brains um, in the spiritual life and trying to yes. map that spiritual life back to our experiences as we experience it, you know, kind of mentally. Um, so that was highly influential then, not only for St. Benedict of the Cross, but also for John Paul II. Yes. So you have this sort of Catholic phenomenological movement that came off almost as a side shoot out of Kant, um, even while Leo XIII was calling people back to the teachings of St. Thomas Aquinas. Right, and I think uh, one of the one of the, one of the uh, real gems, the brilliance really of the of Catholic phenomenology is its uh, its centricity on the human person. And this, I think, is what was so attractive to not only uh, St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, but St. John Paul the Great, right? Having seen uh, the atrocities of, of humanity, uh, humanity's inhumanity to humanity uh, in these uh, horrific systems of national socialism and communism, um, you could see why he would want to. So, you, so when you read... St. John Paul the Great, for example, who uh, was able to create a much broader, deeper body of work simply uh, because he also lived longer. Um, uh, Tragically, obviously, um, uh, St. Teresa was was murdered uh, fairly young, really, um, before she could do a ton of uh, writing. But in St. John Paul the Great, you see this, uh, a very unique kind of philosopher and philosophy at work because he's uh, I see him as bringing together the very best of Thomism, informed by this phenomenology, right. and therefore making a unique contribution to the Catholic philosophical tradition. And uh, someone we have talked about, too, which is also, I think, very relevant, is he's still alive, is Alistair McIntyre, who talked about after virtue. Right. But, but for listeners who want to kind of get a good handle on this uh, intellectual uh, philosophical history. His book, Alistair McIntyre's book called God, Philosophy, 
universities, a selective history of the Catholic philosophical tradition is an excellent work. And it's based off of his, he was teaching a, a course at Notre Dame on this, and then he turned the lectures into a book. Right. And, you know, the history that we just went through is very much kind of a history of where continental philosophy went. Yes. So this is what was happening in the, the, the continental part of Western Europe. We didn't even bring up one of your heroes. Right. Yet. Meanwhile, in, in, in the northern part, in, in, uh, in England, what happened is you had a lot of people that kind of followed in, in the, the wake of Hume. And they developed a different type of tradition called analytical philosophy. So bring us up to date a little bit, Tim, on analytical philosophy and what that is. Sure. So analytical philosophy really has a, um, uh, in, a primary concern is around language and the use of language and understanding how language corresponds to ideas in the mind. Um, and so you're going to have a lot of... Uh, inquiry and philosophical uh, debate and work being done studying, I, I don't mean languages in like one foreign language to another, but rather what do we mean by words? Right. What do words themselves mean? Because we, we think about, and we're, the, the word it's the word word is really important for us as Catholics because it often, it, we use it in two different ways. One is we speak about the word of God, meaning sacred scripture, but we also know from um, uh, the English translation of St. John's prologue in his Holy Gospel, where we use the word word to define what? Jesus, right? Where he's the word of God, which really is in Greek, it's what? Logos or reason. So there's these two different, so getting at what these meanings of different words mean um, becomes from analytic philosophers, primary importance. And then you might have someone, where would you place, let me, I'm going to put you on the spot. Okay, Mark, where would you put... Ludwig Wittgenstein. Well, Notice how I said it like yeah. you would say it? Not like I would like yeah. to say it as a Hoosier. Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein, yeah. <laughs> right. No, I think I think Wittgenstein is very much in that analytical philosophical tradition, even though he was German. Um, yeah, his, his studies, the, the people who he reacted to, the people who he was reading and was influenced by, very much were um, those that were coming out of that analytic. And, the, and those that responded to him were very much those that were in that analytic um, philosophical tradition. Okay, one more name. I know I, don't, I shouldn't name drop, but just because he was so influential. Max Shaler. Are you familiar with him? I'm not that familiar with Shaler, but Shaler, I think, Follows more out of that that kind phenomenology. Of, well, not as Would much. You put him there. Not no? as much phenomenology as I. Yeah, you know, I, I see him more related to the continental. Um, yeah, the continental, but um, you know Derrida and the the, the postmodernists to a certain extent that came out, and you know, in a lot of ways, they were kind of. Influenced by both, so um, yeah. Because I would put him kind of in both camps, right? Exactly. Almost. Yeah, because yeah, he's yeah. got that book Res Sentiment. Is it spelled right. like it's like two S's in there, but it's like Resentment, right? Which is a a great book by Max Shaler. If you really want to understand a lot of what we're going on in our culture, read Re Re Resentment or Res Sentiment. Is it? Right. I think I would pronounce right. it, but that's a that's a classic, and uh, because I mean, it's so relevant, yeah. Uh, because it really does paint this picture of how. People develop, we develop these incredible resentments, often triggered by uh, vice, uh, right. like like uh, envy and greed. Yeah, but, you know, that's, um, 
that's coming directly out of Nietzsche to a certain extent, correct? Yes, he is yeah, pulling exactly. that out. So, he is pulling that out. And that's why you know, Nietzsche had a huge, I mean, and, and still does a huge yeah, influence does. on a lot of continental philosophy. So you know, he's probably the 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 bigger in a lot of ways the bigger figure when you're looking at modernism and postmodernism than even Kant within continental philosophy. Yeah. I want to go back to Maritain for a minute, Jacques Maritain, and the reason why is I, I just want to recommend him for not just reading his philosophical work, but his his biography is also very fascinating. His whole his life story and how he became a he and his wife became Catholic, right? Because she was a very uh, she was a very brilliant. Uh, philosopher in her own right too kind of reminds me of another tw- great 20th century catholic philosopher uh dietrich von hildebrand right. and his wife alice who's still with us right um and she was quite a bit younger than him so that's probably why she's still around but uh there, you know you have i bring up maritan because um it was as i understand it he was go- he and his wife were going through a they were students in paris he's 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 french and uh, they're both French, and uh, they're going through this. They have this kind of existential crisis. In other words, they don't they don't think there's any meaning or purpose to life. Exactly. And it's through they're introduced by one of their professors, I think it is, or a priest. Hey, you need to read Saint Thomas Aquinas. And in reading Aquinas, they because they were going to commit suicide because life was pointless. Life is very difficult, and if it's uh, if there's no point to it, and it's very difficult, you might imagine why ending it. Uh, soon would might make some sense so they were actually i think fairly actively considering uh, uh suicide and then uh, sort of a Aqu- reading aquinas sort of uh rescues them from that kind of despair uh for them to go on and be very prominent um well-read theologian in fact if you look at the uh un's universal declaration of human rights which is established in the wake of uh, world war ii it's maritan's work that 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 really furnishes the the uh, the the initial dra- the initial document itself, and you can read it, and it's very Catholic. Now, I will say, if you go to it today, it's been modified. It's been amended. Yeah, <laughs> it's been amended, <laughs> and it's not so Catholic now. Right. Some of it is, but a lot of it, you you might find is Catholic. You would not say it's uh, those are Catholic understandings of the human right. person or society. Uh, with that though, let's uh, let's take a quick break, and we come back. Let's uh, let's let's kind of go through in this last segment let's kind of go through the rest of the 20th century and into the 21st you're listening to the catholic cave on catholic radio indy besides going to mass every sunday we're all encouraged to spend some time with our lord each week to shut out distractions present our prayers to god and then just listen in today's hectic world that sounds impossible doesn't it well chances are there's an adoration chapel in a Catholic church not far from where you live, a place where you can spend an hour or just a few minutes in the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, in a quiet, peaceful atmosphere where you can really talk to Jesus, and more importantly, He can talk to you. Many chapels are open 24 hours a day. Here are some of the places where you'll find adoration chapels. At Our Lady of Mount Carmel, St. Alphonsus in Zionsville, St. Louis de Montfort in Fishers, and St. Maria Gravetti in Westfield. Why not stop by soon? Jesus is there, and he is waiting to talk to you. Most of us like to keep up on what's going on in the world and try to catch a little news each day. Did you know that you can catch the very latest Catholic news right on our website? 
We have news from Rome, from around the world, and here at home, updated every day so you always know what's going on from a Catholic perspective. Check it out. Go to CatholicRadioIndy.org and look for the Catholic news headlines. There's always something new at CatholicRadioIndy.org. At Catholic Radio, we love to hear from you. Call us anytime. Just recently, we found this message on our voicemail. I'm a non-Catholic that listens to your Catholic radio station, and I just want to thank you guys. I listen to uh, Catholic Answers and Al Cresta sometimes, and I think her name's Teresa Tommy. I listen to her and uh, another show or two. I appreciate it. Call us at 317-870-8400 and let us know what you're thinking. I just called to say, you know, I'm not a Catholic. I listen to your station. Manamana. 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 Welcome back to the Catholic Cave. I'm Kip Lamford in the cave with me, Mr. Mark Tuttle and Mr. Timothy O'Donnell. We are talking about phenomenology, and I gotta admit, I got these guys laughing because every time they say phenomena, I break into the Muppets. Phenomena. But you know. You gotta YouTube it. But trust me, we'll, we'll oh, get back to the serious side of things. But uh, that's why they keep me here to kind of, uh, you know. Oh, man. Well, I've been holding it in, too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I'm bringing the show back to reality or taking it further out. We're kind of talking about reality, yeah. and that's a crisis. I think just about every student of Kant has that go through their head. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, oh, man. So, what a great show. Muppet yeah. Show was a great show. So bringing us back a little bit, we've been talking about, yes, these movements in, in continental yeah. philosophy and analytic philosophy and how um, Jacques Maritain and Etienne Jolson and other um, neo-Thomists heard the call of Leo XIII. They went back to St. Thomas to try to answer some of these questions and try to get us out of some of, in a lot of ways, the chaos yeah. that had been created by all these movements within modernism. Correct. And what you have then is... Um, you know, we, we have the 50s, sort of the golden age of the Catholic Church in America, um, but you, uh, Vatican II, everything begins to shift, not just because of Vatican II, but let's remember Vatican II is also for the Western, Western world. It's also situated and, co and coincides with a cultural and sexual revolution, right? That's also all this stuff is happening. And just as American education was, was um, what it, the classical liberal education was sort of pushed aside for, for new projects. So in the Catholic Church and seminaries, Thomism, Neo-Thomism, Scholasticism, Neo-Scholasticism sort of gets pushed aside for a while, and other thinkers are advanced. Who? Well, Karl Rahner would be one. He's right. incredibly important. Um, I have a lot of disagreements with his uh, uh, philosophy and theology, but I would say Rahner becomes really prominent, You've got Hans Kung, who's an open dissenter, uh, and others, right? And right. so you begin to have this rift between uh, those who, I would say, uh, see Vatican II as uh, a project of continuity and updating for the, for the modern milieu. This is where, again, St. John Paul II is, uh, Pope uh, Benedict XVI, and others. Uh, but then you also have a very strong, and I would say dominant for, for decades, this uh, this camp of rupture led by these by by a lot of dissidents, and this is where the the crazy distasteful uh, I would say 
uh, attempts at uh, at re- renewal happen within Holy Mother Church, right? And it, which I, has all been about we've we've about vanquished a lot of it, I think. Right, and I think as you look back, you can kind of see why this movement, in some ways, makes sense. As mm-hmm. as wrongheaded as it was, um, you know, Vatican II, in a lot of ways, was a call for the church to modernize itself. Right, and so Rahner and Hans Kung and and all of these guys were taking modern philosophy, and they were trying to Catholicize this modern philosophy without going back to St. Thomas Aquinas, right. and I without think, without you know going back to I think the tradition. They were trying to take what was going on philosophically in the secular world and Catholicize it and spiritualize it, and and you know to to greater or lesser success or not. I mean I think there's a yeah. lot of value within Rahner. I I agree with you. There's a lot to disagree with him, but I do think there's a lot that positive in some ways that comes out of Rauner and I see your eyebrows looking down and I'm getting that well you have to sit through them you have to do a lot of heavy lifting and and I would say I would say one of the schools though uh you're I I I generally agree with you but I also think though there was a school of what was called transcendental Thomism which was an effort to reconcile Kant with Thomism and I think that project has failed. But yeah, I think that one has has what worked, is worked still, itself. It's it's still yeah. alive, but I think it's it's yeah. working its its way out to a certain yeah. extent. And you have again uh, John Paul II with his pontificate really ushers in this whole new era of Thomism, right? And and but blended with phenomenology, you have even in the current setting, I would say, where is phenomenology still? A, a living, breathing um, uh, uh, inqu- uh, group of where there's inquiry going on, and it's Franciscan University of Steubenville because for two uh, for a father and son duo, which is that you have uh, Professor John Crosby was a student of Dietrich von Hildebrandt, and so he's kept that he's wrote, written books and and kept that uh, school going, and then his son John Crosby also, but I think the initials are different, so it's not like. Right. senior junior but anyway he started and he's the he's the president of the hildebrand uh dietrich von hildebrand project there and so this is where there's an ongoing not only just uh, reading uh, uh hildebrand now and and sort of find new ways to advance his thought but also an ongoing project of translation because uh, there's there's still many many of uh, Hildebrand's writing. He was German. Right. Uh, there's actually a recent book about him about his writings against the Nazis before because he was chased out. He was a he clearly opposed the the Nazis and he he ran for his life and barely escaped uh, to the United States and landed at Fordham, I think it was. Um, so there are there is that phenomenological school that's still out there active at, at least at uh, Franciscan University of Steubenville, maybe maybe other places. But Thomism is found. Even in your alma mater, University of Houston, right? University of Dallas. Dallas, I'm right, sorry, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. My Univers- sister's in Houston. Yeah, she just yeah. got here, so. Yeah, I'm yeah I, I think mind. that I think you're right. I think that, that Thomistic renewal, you're right. University of Dallas has a lot to do. University of Dallas, I mean, there was a lot of discussion of continental philosophy there as well. Um, going back to Hegel, um, you know, kind of having a, a, a right-wing read or a, a Catholic-friendly read mm-hmm. of Hegel to a certain extent. Um, well, that explains you a little bit. <laughs> Because <laughs> there's only yeah. one other German guy you didn't bring in yet, and you know I'm waiting for you to do it. Heidegger, Heidegger, he's right, gonna yes. say it. He's gonna do it. Yeah, uh, and we'll we'll talk about Heidegger yeah. on a whole. Not- I mean, you you brought in yeah. Karl Rahner, and to a yeah. certain extent, Rahner is the the attempt to Catholicize Heidegger. Um, if you if you squint, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't disagree. I think that's part of what he's doing. Yeah, um, but um, who would you say? 
you know, because we're going to run out of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so let's let's go to the 21st century now. Yeah. Who who's who's really relevant that's alive right now that you would say in the Catholic philosophical tradition? Who where do you or schools or what comes to mind right now? I think a lot of what's going on right now is trying to digest philosophically the writings of our two past popes, oh, Benedict the yeah, yeah. 16th and John Paul II. As we mentioned, John Paul II was highly influenced by phenomenology. Um, his theology, the body, is pretty much a phenomenological work. Yes, um, so I you start to that, read yeah. through it. It is the, it is the phenomenology of... I mean, really, the entire spiritual life mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways is, is there. And so um, trying to digest that's part of it. But Benedict XVI also brought a lot of philosophical um, a- ammunition, I guess, right. to, to his, his writings and his encyclicals. And so in trying to digest those, I think you're, um, you're, you're trying. The other big move I see going on contemporary right now, starting in the 21st century, um, and Bishop Barron um, oh. plays into this mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, you know, there's some other writers, um, Brandon Vogt, who works for Bishop Barron. Um, they're trying to bring about a, a postmodern approach to Catholicism. And so there, I think there's an attempt to take postmodernism, which, you know, postmodernism is an attempt in some ways to retrieve the symbols and the the content so you know you get back to the study of language that we talked about analytic philosophy well on the in continental philosophy there was a similar move of analyzing language for language's sake and getting back to Mm. the central stories Mm. that were going on and basically kind of saying you know all reality is colored by these stories that we pull in from the past there's an attempt to create what the Catholic story is to a certain extent and juxtapose that to the other narrative stories and things that are going on within our culture. And so trying to assert Catholicism as an authoritative expression of the human experience. Um, and so I see that going on in, in various bits and forms um, it, it, within the, the Catholic intellectual world right now. So there are par- uh, pockets, Mark, of... Uh, these different vibrant schools of uh, Catholic philosophical and theological inquiry. Um, I like to, th- you know, few we might mention from from previous guests on the show and those that went and we're also going to have these guys back too. Are um, I, I really like uh, what Professor Patrick Deneen has been working on and advancing up there at the University of Notre Dame. Um, there's Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, with their symposium, the New Evangelization. Um, I'm heading out there again to, to do a paper, uh, have a uh, present a paper on that, uh, part of that again. And, and there's a lot of the Catholic tradition right now that is trying to get our minds collectively around the technology and the advances of the culture and the, the continued, I guess, degradation of the culture to a certain extent when you're talking about you know, social oh, yeah. pathologies and things like oh, that, yeah. that, that we're we... trying to, but the other thing that's going on is I think there's a reaction to neotomism that's going on right now. And so the pendulum is swinging a little bit. And so we're trying to recapture Thomism for Thomism's sake, not just as a reaction against modernism, but trying to bring back Thomism because it helps us understand the world right. on its own terms. Right. So right. yeah, Dr. Redpath, when we have Dr. Redpath on yes. the show, I think he's very much part of that move. So, 
Well, yeah. unfortunately, gentlemen, that's all the time we have for this week. It's been a phenomenal show. Oh, no! oh, you had to do it. Couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. That's all the time we have for the Catholic Cave for this week. For Mark Tuttle, for Mr. Timothy O'Donnell, I'm Kit Blanford. Until next time, may God bless. The Catholic Cave is a production of Catholic Radio Indy. Replays of this program are available in podcast form at catholicradioindy.org. Comments about this program can be addressed to Kent at catholicradioindy.org or by calling 317-870-8400. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org. Catholic Radio Indy thanks you for your support.